Let's go ahead and turn our Bibles this evening to Matthew chapter 5. Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be reading a uh, larger portion of scripture later in the sermon, so for uh, to open here, read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump down to verse 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, in verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's once again pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on his word tonight. Our Father, we do come as those who are needy and look to you to give light from your word. Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand what it is to be meek. You would help us to see that in our Savior. And Father, we pray that we would be those who would uh, show more and more that meekness that you alone can give and put in a soul. Father, do come and minister to us through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been looking at the Beatitudes from our Lord, we have noticed that they are counterintuitive to our natural way of thinking. They are characteristics that confront us with the reality that they are not natural to us. They are traits, we might say, that must be worked in us by the Spirit of God. And that's true of each and every Beatitude listed here. In fact, I would remind you that what Jesus is laying out here is not a standard for us to attain. Rather, it is a declaration of what the Spirit of God produces in each one of us as we are born again into the kingdom. Now, as we come, continue our studies in the Beatitudes, we come tonight to consider the meek and the blessing that is held out to them. And we'll consider this verse under two main points. We're going to consider the marks of the meek, and then secondly, the promised inheritance. So consider, first of all, the marks of the meek. So we come to consider the first part of the beatitude, blessed are the meek. I want us to consider it under three subheadings. One is consider the soil of meekness, meekness defined, and then meekness personified. But before we do that, it might be helpful up front to really define what we mean by meek. What does meek or meekness mean? And those words are rather difficult to define. It's not because the word themselves are complicated. It's rather that there's no one-to-one -one definition for it. There's not one English word we might give to capture what is being conveyed to us here by the meek. For example, one Greek lexicon defines it as not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance, gentle, humble, considerate, meek. Another is similar, pertaining to being gentle and mild. And then if you consider the Hebrew equivalent of the word, of the Greek word that's being used here, it means humble and lowly and meek. So before we get into the sermon, I want to submit to you a possible definition to help us as we work through the sermon tonight. And that definition is that meekness is that quality of soul wrought by the grace of God that manifests itself in a submissive trust in the Lord and displays itself in gentleness and humility to those around us, both when wronged or when demands are made on us. And I'll say that again. Meekness is that quality of soul wrought by the grace of God that manifests itself in a submissive trust in the Lord and displays itself in gentleness and humility to those around us, both when wronged or when demands are made on us. Now that gives us something to work with, and my intention in the, under this first main heading is to unpack that definition for us. So consider, first of all, the soil of meekness. In any type of gardening, whether it be for food or for flowers, the soil is important to seeing the product grow. Have bad soil or the wrong type of soil, and you won't see any healthy growth or any growth at all. And the same applies to meekness and being meek. It must have the proper soil if we are going to see it grow and thrive. And that soil that meekness grows in is the previous two beatitudes that we, sit, that we considered before, being poor in spirit and being those who mourn over sin. In fact, one could say that meekness is the visible fruit of those other two. Because as we looked at before, poor in spirit and mourning over sin may not be observable to the bare eye. 
not, it's not necessarily observable to each other. We can't look at someone and think, oh, they're poor in spirit or they are mourning over sin. But being meek is observable and felt by others. But we can't explain, expl- expect to display meekness toward others if we're not growing and experiencing in these other two areas, of being poor in spirit and mourning over sin. If we're proud, if we don't mourn over our sin, if we're not living in conscious dependence on God, then we're not going to display meekness before God and in regard to others. And we're not going to fully look at those other two. I would refer you back to the messages done on them to unpack the being poor in spirit and mourning means. But I wanted us to recognize and remind us of those two because they do provide the framework which meekness grows in. Because much of what constitutes meekness is a humility and lowliness. And brethren, if we are going to recognize our own poverty of spirit and the presence of remaining sin, then that should keep us humble and lowly. And in fact, this Martin Lloyd-Jones made a very perceptive comment, I thought. It was one of those that after you read it, you'd want to say, ouch. But he was talking about how we can be poor in spirit and we can mourn over sin. And that has to do in our relation before God. And understand what I'm saying here and what he was saying. It's easy to acknowledge that before God. It's another matter if someone comes alongside and points out your poverty of spirit, points out your sin, and then our defenses come up. Well, who, who do you think you're talking about? That's not me. We want to put our defenses up. Well, meekness says, no, that's what I am. You, you're right. You're, you're putting the mark on who I am. So that's kind of where meekness is. Meekness allows and gives visibility to that poverty of spirit and that mourning over sin. But let's consider meekness displayed. Meekness both displayed and further defined for us. And there are several places that we could go in the scriptures to look at in order to see this. And perhaps just when you heard the text, your mind went to perhaps Numbers 12.3. Now the man Moses was very humble or meek more than all men who were on the face of the earth. And that's in the context there where Aaron and Miriam come to Moses and challenge his authority. And the Lord comes and defends his servant before them. But the place I want to look at primarily is actually the place that Jesus is alluding to here in Matthew 5, 5. And that place is Psalm 37. In the Beatitude, Jesus is alluding to Psalm 37, 11. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And in alluding to that text, I believe our Lord is drawing the minds of his listeners and our minds back to that psalm to give us a picture of those who are meek. And considering this psalm, it helped brings out our definition of meekness given earlier. So what I want us to do, I want us to read that psalm and then notice the descriptions given of those who would be counted as the meek. And as we read through this psalm together, notice how the meek relate under two large categories, their relation to God and their relation to others. So let's turn over to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. It's a psalm of David. We read there, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret and only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bow shall be broken. 
A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of, the, of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judge. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Now, I know that was a rather longer portion of scripture. But it, again, I believe it's capturing for us our Lord's intention of quoting and alluding to, to verse 11 there. But consider what this psalm teaches us in regards to the meek and their relation to God. Now, we could cover this with one giant banner that simply says that the meek are those who trust in the Lord. But the psalm uses several terms to picture that for us. So we're told that they trust in the Lord and do good. That is, they believe in him. They place their confidence in him. They know his truth and do good by living in obedience to his law. They feed on his faithfulness. Let him sustain you. Let him keep you. Let him provide for you. His faithfulness is sure and steadfast and never runs out. They are those who are said to delight in the Lord. Take pleasure in and refresh yourself in the Lord. Let him be your ultimate joy and treasure. They commit their way to the Lord. And that's an interesting picture right there because it means to roll onto or roll away. That is, in other words, give it to the Lord. Entrust your way to the Lord to guide and keep you through life's paths. And they rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. And the idea of rest is not to do nothing, but rather it has the idea of standing still and seeing the Lord act. Similar, similarly to when Moses in Exodus 14, 13 tells the people of Israel, do not be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. And that's when the Lord was going to open the Red Sea and deliver Israel from Egypt. But there's also a waiting patiently for the Lord. And here's that part we struggle with. We don't like to be patient. We have our own timetable time for things to get done. And as you read the psalm, you get the impression that David is waiting for the Lord to deliver him and to vindicate him. Specifically, verse 6 and 7. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Wait in the, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. There's this idea of waiting for the Lord to act and to do what we, what we are looking for. But here we have that picture of meekness that is a submissive trust in the Lord and in his providence. The psalmist, David, is submissive, waiting for the Lord to act. And then near the end of the psalm, David reiterates to wait on the Lord and to keep his way. That is, how the Lord delivers us or answers us or acts on his, on his behalf is his prerogative. And how and when he does that is up to him. We're called to wait on him, hope in him, and stay faithful to where he has called us. 
So the meek in Psalm 37 are those who humbly trust in the Lord. They entrust themselves to him and his purposes for them. And this is particularly evident in matters that are troubling to them or difficult or trying. And let me just say by way of application here that we should seek to grow in our trust and submission to the will of God. And that should be familiar to us, as Pastor Derek has been dealing with that recently in Mark. But that is, that aspect of submission and trust in the Lord and his will for us is an aspect of being meek. We might say that is the framework where meekness grows. Those expressions of trust in the Lord in Psalm 37 are made in a season of life that is difficult. The psalm mentions the prosperity of the wicked over against the suffering and confusion of the righteous. And where there is a temptation to fret and to worry and to respond unjustly and to be like the wicked, wicked, the meek are those who entrust themselves to the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. They are not trying to right their own wrongs or force a change. They humbly wait upon the Lord, trusting him to vindicate and deliver them in his own timing. And that's hard because we often struggle with our own desires and wanting to see things change on our own timing. We may tend to doubt God's heart toward us when things are delayed. We may inwardly and sometimes outwardly to others express frustration with his providence in our lives. But the heart of the meek displays itself in a quiet acceptance and submission to the will of God. Now that's not to discount anything that Pastor Derek mentioned uh, last week regarding lament and praying before the Lord. Meekness is not opposed to that. But meekness does show itself in submission to God's will till things may or may not change. Can still pray, can still lament, but it still submits and accepts from the Lord's hands, whatever he gives. And if we're going to grow in this aspect of meekness, then we should study much and meditate much on who God is. Consider the question seven to the Westminster Larger Catechism and the answer to it. The question is, what is God? God is a spirit, in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, most wise, I'm sorry, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. The doctrine of God is meant to be a ballast to the soul of each and every believer. It provides stability and peace for our souls because it's often in doubting who God is or a confusion of who God is that our souls begin to be troubled. We have to realize who we are before this God. He is the one who is sovereign, not us. He determines our boundaries and our days. He gives and he takes away. He answers to no one. And yet, He loves each and every one of his people. He is good to all, even the unthankful. And for those in Christ, he is your father in heaven. And Christ is your elder brother, and the spirit dwells within you. And that reality should humble us to receive all things, whatever they be, from the hand of God. Not to murmur and not to grumble, but to meekly accept. But we also need to understand rightly God's providence. The providence of God shapes every aspect of our life. It is the outworking of God's decree in our lives. As our own confession words that the providence of God is the work of God, the good creator. It's not arbitrary or harsh. It comes from the hand of a God who is good and whose tender mercies are over all his works. The ultimate end purpose of everything that comes into our lives is one of good and for his glory. Even the difficult, the painful, and the grieving things of life are there for your good and for conforming you more to the image of Christ. Now, all that we may not understand right now, and when we're in the middle of it. Or we might not know exactly how that is happening, but that is where meekness shows itself. It humbly accepts it as true and waits on the Lord to reveal and make it known. But we also see in this psalm how to respond to others, specifically those who injure us or harm us, And this brings us to our second category of meekness in this psalm. That is meekness in relation to others. As I said in our definition, that meekness displays itself in gentleness and humility to those around us, both when wrong or when demands are made on us. 
Several times in this psalm, the counsel is given not to fret over evildoers. And the word fret is interesting. And I think we tend to use it in a way that gives the idea of putting ourselves, we might say, into a tizzy or almost to a point of being uh, near panicking. But the Hebrew word has the idea of becoming hot or angry. It's the picture of a person mulling over wrong done or injustice suffered by someone and working themselves up into anger. Hence the counsel given in Psalm 37, 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. Now this goes against the grain of our nature because we want them all over it. We want to bring it up into mind. We want to think about it. We want to we think about ways we can respond. And where the response of the flesh is to lash out, specifically toward those who are causing us trouble and conflict, that is not the response of the meek. They don't lash out. They don't respond to anger with anger and wrath. They entrust themselves to the Lord and wait on him. And it's always a temptation to respond to mistreatment, whether by words or actions with similar mistreatment. Someone speaks ill of us, and we want to respond the same way. Someone tricks us, treats us wrongly and unjustly, and we are tempted to get angry and want to let them know how we think and feel about the matter. But that's not the way of the meek. Those who are meek are not looking to even the score or to vindicate themselves. They bear wrongs patiently. And that's not to say they overlook something that is clearly illegal. Uh, that's, that's a topic for another time. But speaking in terms of as ones who are believers and who suffer for being believers, they are willing to bear wrongs done to them. And it does mean when we are treated unjustly or when others rail against us or when evil and wickedness seem to be prospering, the meek leave it to God to deal with. And this aspect of meekness has much to say to us in our own day. Because in many areas of our society, it's not hard to see the wicked and the evil prospering all around, all around us in what they do and in what they plan. And God himself and his truth and God's people are often maligned and spoken ill of. And there can be the temptation within us to want to respond in like manner. We want to match the level of discourse. We want to force a change for the better, and if somehow we can gain the upper hand, then we can set things right. But the heart of the meek does not fret over the wicked. The heart of the meek can trust the Lord to do what is right and respond in gentleness and humility even when wronged. This heart of the meek is the heart of Joseph. You know the story. Joseph's brothers were jealous of him and sold him into slavery and basically wrote him off as dead. But then many years later, they are brought face to face with Joseph who has risen to second to Pharaoh over all Egypt. You know, the father Jacob dies, and the brothers are worried that Joseph will now exact vengeance on the wrong done him. Now just pause there, because you might think they have a just reason to fear. Jacob has died now. Joseph can pretty much do whatever he wants. All he has to do is say the word, and any punishment he wants can be done to them. And it would be understandable for Joseph now to have his brothers pay for the sorrow and pain, not only that they caused him, but they caused their father. That's not what he does. Rather, we read in Genesis 50, 19 through 21, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? That's the heart of the meek. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. There was no denying that. They wanted him dead. They wanted him, they wished he had never been born and they were going to do all they could to make sure that he was erased from the family. They meant evil, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. There's the gentleness. I will provide for you and your little ones. He wasn't obligated to, but it's a heart of meekness. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Again, that, that's not natural to us. But that is what God's grace does produce in our hearts. And that's what meekness displays itself as. That's the heart of a man who's been made meek. A man who knows himself, who knows his God, and is able to respond in a way that leaves everything in the hands of God. He wasn't going to be the judge. God was going to take care of it. He'd leave it to God. 
And one of the reasons we can be meek and gentle in responding to the injuries of others to us is because we know the end of the wicked. And the meek know that and realize that. You see that all through the psalm here. We read in Psalm 37 that the meek are going, or the wicked are going to be driven off the face of the earth. The meek know that. And they also realize that's only by the grace of God that they differ and that they're not in there with the wicked as well. Our own consciousness of that, our own reality of knowing that simply by the grace of God this made us differ. Not anything we've done, not because we are somehow righteous of ourselves, but the grace of God has come and delivered us. It's that consciousness that rules their mind and that allows them to be gentle and lowly in our response to those who treat us ill. Well, that's something of meekness given to us, both in relation to God and in relation to others from Psalm 37. But now, and still wanting to see meekness shown to us, I want us to consider meekness personified. What does meekness look like embodied perfectly? We got a picture of that in Joseph. But Joseph was still a sinner. Got a picture of that in Moses. Moses was still a sinner. Got a picture of that in David in Psalm 37, but David's still a sinner. But what does perfect meekness embodied look like? Well, if you want to see that, I think we all naturally turn to the words of Matthew eleven twenty nine of our Lord Jesus, where it says, in, using the King James Version, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Now, considering that other translations will use either meek or gentle or lowly, that also helps us see in how to define this word. But in this text here, Jesus refers to himself as being meek. And he does this in the context of inviting others, those who are weary and heavy laden, to come to him, and in coming to him to find rest for their souls. And it's interesting that this is how Jesus describes his heart. As Spurgeon remarked, it is the only passage in the whole New Testament in which the heart of Jesus is distinctly mentioned uh, is, is this text here, Matthew eleven twenty nine. The one statement he makes concerning his heart, and he refers to himself as being meek or gentle. And as we consider and look at our Lord's life in the Gospels, we see this meekness and gentleness pervade his entire life and ministry. In fact, we're given a picture of this meekness even before his coming. In places like Isaiah 53, listen to what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And that gives us a picture of the sufferings of Christ. And the one thing that stands out from reading that is that he was undergoing all this suffering and affliction as one who was completely innocent. There was no violence nor deceit in his mouth. That's saying that he is innocent. He did nothing wrong. And yet we know from here and from the records of our Lord's suffering leading up to and including the crucifixion, he was mistreated. He was deemed guilty. He suffered as one who was guilty, though he had, was fully and completely innocent. He was one in whom false witnesses were brought in to accuse him. Never had there been a man, and never will there be a man who was more innocent than Jesus. And yet in all this, he was silent, and he went willingly. He did not revile. He did not lash out. Rather, he was meek and gentle, patiently enduring the afflictions heaped upon him, as a lamb going to the slaughter. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, talking to servants, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beating, beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins and his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Notice, he did not revile, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Language that again reflects as Psalm 37, committing his way to the Lord, waiting upon the Lord. In his sufferings, we see the meekness of Jesus on display. But we also see it elsewhere. We've quoted Matthew 11:29, And then later on in Matthew 21, 5, he is described, quoting from Zechariah 9, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, or, or the same word there, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. His meekness is displayed in his gentle dealings with sinners and his open invitation to receive all who come to him. His appearance and coming was of one who is lowly and meek. That is, from our Lord's interactions here on the earth, he was not one to rebuff, that is, to drive people off. He's not one that, that appears prickly or testy, He's not one that you might have had to watch for a little bit to observe, does, does he want people coming to him? Does he not want people? Is now a good time? Is now not a good time? He's not like others where we might want to find an intermediary, maybe someone closer to him to go on our behalf to reach out to him and to test the waters to see if we can approach him. He's not like that at all. He bids you to come straight to him because he is meek and gentle. Remember what is said in Matthew 12, 18 through 21. This is quoting from Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust he will not quarrel nor cry out, indicating he did not come to contend or argue. He did not come to indict or pronounce judgment because he is meek. He will not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax, pictures of weak faith and weak believers and poor believers. He won't do that because he is meek. My friend, whoever you are, you have every reason to be hopeful in coming to Jesus. He himself is one who bids you to come to him because he is meek and gentle. He is one who wept over Jerusalem, knowing he was soon going to enter that city and he was going to be put to death by those in that city, yet he still weeps over them. And he says, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks. That right there is the heart of one who is meek and gentle. And for both unbelievers here and for believers here tonight, his heart has not changed. He is still meek and gentle. He still receives and welcomes all those who come to him, those who don't deserve to be welcomed. No one has to sit here tonight and wonder, if I go to him, will I be received by him? Will, I, will he welcome me? Because the answer to that is yes, he will welcome you. He will receive you. If you go to him tonight as poor, as needy, as full of sin, full of breaking God's law, under condemnation to that law, Go to Jesus. Tell him that he said that those who are weary can come to him and find rest because he is meek and gentle. Tell him that you come trusting him to do as he promised. And you know what? He will do as he promised. He will receive you and he will welcome you. And for those of us who are trusting in him now, take comfort that this remains the heart of Christ toward you. You may feel yourself as that smoking flax and that bruised reed but he still deals gently with you. He doesn't wait for you to come so he can, as it were, kick you while you're down to remind you of all your failings. No, he's there who is meek and who is gentle. When you come to him, he is there as your physician and as your high priest to intercede, to heal, to restore, and to bind up and to make whole. But the last example I want us to consider tonight from our Lord is that of the Garden of Gethsemane and the subsequent events leading to the cross. And again, Pastor Derek has been dealing with this, so I only want to highlight a couple things that relates to our Lord being meek. And consider those well-known words from Mark 14, 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. 
take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And here our Lord in his humanity, with the knowledge of all that awaited him, all that was going to befall him, all the agony and suffering that he was about to endure, submits himself to the will of the Father, entrusting himself to his Father, and in that was displaying meekness here in the garden. And again, we have a picture of what we considered in Psalm 37. We see Jesus trusting the Lord. We see him committing his way to the Lord. We see him resting in the Lord and waiting for the Lord. All those things that we looked at in Psalm 37 are all on display here by our Lord in the garden and in the midst of his agonies. As we read in Hebrews 5, 7 through 8, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He patiently resigned himself to the care of his father, waiting for the unfolding of his will, being obedient to what he was called. And that is that Godward element of meekness that we considered earlier, that entrusts ourselves to the Lord. Even when the way is hard and the way is difficult. So let me, as we've considered these things, behold the meekness of your Savior, a perfect meekness. And as we consider his meekness in light of this beatitude, we see it as another reflection of being conformed to his image. If we want to be those who are meek, then let us meditate on how it displays itself in our Savior. And as we see it on display with him, let us pray for grace, that we would be more and more conformed to this meekness in our own hearts and our own lives. And that would show itself in practical, everyday matters. And let me remind you that this gentleness, this meekness is also a fruit of the Spirit. It tells us in Galatians 5. It's needed not just for when we are wronged by the world, but it's also needed for one another. Consider Ephesians 4, 1 through, 2, 1 through 2. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Colossians three twelve. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. In Titus 3.2, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. This should mark us as God's people. And we should be able to look around at one another and, as it were, see little expressions of the heart of Christ in our dealings with one another. Because he is the one who is meek and lowly. And we are being conformed into his image. But let me ask, how are you when your plans are infringed upon, or your time is asked of you, or you're disturbed from things you need to get done, do we respond in gentleness and meekness? Do we let ourselves suffer for the benefits of others? If we are going to imitate our Savior, then this meekness should mark us. Or do we appear easily put out? Or do the demands of others on us make us resentful? I was thinking, you think in terms of our Lord's interactions here on the earth, how many times that it talks about he would retire from a place to seek quiet, and then the crowds would find him out. And he doesn't rebuff them. He doesn't drive them away. You see him there, even in his own weakness and his own tiredness, still ministering to the crowds. He still receives them because he was meek. But are we like that? I have to just admit, speaking as a husband and father, do we make those who we live with question whether they should bother us? As parents, do our children find us approachable and gentle in dealing with them? Or do we come across as being inconvenienced, as though we are being put out by their needs and demands on us? And I have to confess, after thinking about this, I can give that impression at times. And get that impression as though my time and my needs are more important. And I was considering this last night, I realized I spent most of yesterday in the library because it was quiet and I knew I wouldn't be disturbed working on this. So I could come away from that and think, oh, I'm, I'm meek, I'm gentle, but I also wasn't disturbed at all. So I had nothing to test it. Um, but how are we in the normal day-to-day -day things? 
And that's not to say there are not times when you may need to be, be alone to get something done. But is that all the time we get interrupted when we're doing something? Are children free to come to us? What about those in the church, those we interact with? Do they find us to be of that gentle and lowly disposition as we interact with one another? Or are we often grumbling and complaining about others or about inconveniences we face? That type of attitude is the opposite of weakness. That wasn't our Savior. You think of even, even uh, the accounts of the children being brought to him and how many times children are mentioned being around our Lord. Children normally won't naturally go to someone who's gruff and who's, who's off-putting. And parents aren't normally going to want to bring their kids to someone who is not gentle and, and does not appear safe. And you think about it, even the disciples themselves, how they were like wanting to get rid of the children because they were, they, were, they were not important. They were keeping us from doing more important things. And yet they recognized that Jesus was different. Jesus would still receive the children and they could still bring them to him. Brethren, are we like that with one another? Do we have that open gentleness and meekness that others are free to come and maybe demand stuff of us that we wish they didn't, but that we are able to respond to them in gentleness and meekness because the Savior has responded that way to us and because the Savior is making us more and more like himself. So let's look for the help of the Spirit and of grace to be more conformed to the heart of our Savior in this area, knowing he has promised to make us more meek like himself. Well, let's consider secondly now, second main heading, the promise inheritance. What is the blessing that attends the meek? What is promised those who often suffer and lose in this life? Well, Jesus promises that the meek will inherit the earth. And let me just note that these meek that we have considered, they are the ones who are blessed. They are those who are divinely favored. Now, when you think of that, you could ask, what more could you ask? You have divine favor. What more could you ask for? But in these beatitudes, we see that divine favor being particularized or being opened up to show us what exactly it is that this favor shows itself as. And for the meek, it's mentioned that they inherit the earth. Now, we are familiar with the word inherit. It means to come into possession, to be bequeathed something, to acquire or obtain but note again, we are confronted with the grace of God because this is nothing that we did to earn it. We didn't earn this inheritance. We didn't work our way up to it. Rather, it is a free gift of God to the meek. It is part of the blessing that comes to those who are in the kingdom. It's part of your rightful inheritance and the rightful inheritance of all those who are in the kingdom. But notice what our inheritance is. What is it that we get? It's the earth. Now, again, this is something that was all over Psalm 37. I hope you were picking that up as we read that. But just to, re to remind us, verse 9, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. Verse 11, But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Verse 22, For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. And then verse 29, The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The promise of an, of an inheritance of land is all over that psalm. And for the old covenant Israelite, they had the expectation of a promised land by God. The promise to their fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was that their descendants would possess the land. And God was determined to fulfill his promise to them. And we know that he brought his people up from slavery out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land, that they could then possess it and dwell in it. And the main promise of the Old Covenant was that if the people were faithful and obedient, they would dwell in that land. But that promise of a land was not an end of itself. It was pointing forward to something more glorious and something more wonderful. Even as you read this psalm, even in the best of days for the Old Testament people, they never fully experienced this. They, never experienced, or they experienced the hardship and flourishing of the wicked. But they never had a land where the wicked were no more and where they dwelt in the land forever. So Canaan, that promised land, the old covenant, was not final. It couldn't be. 
but rather it was a picture of something that God would do on a much grander scale. And God's promise wasn't that his people would ultimately inherit a small sliver of land. Now that was a temporary promise made to the old covenant people. But as I said, it was pointing to something greater that God was going to do. God was going to give his people the entire earth. Not just a piece of land, but the created earth is going to be the promised possession of the people of God. And it's not going to be this earth as we know it. And we can enjoy this earth now. As we sang tonight, this is my father's world. And we see his glory on display all over this world. It shouts the glory of God. And we can enjoy this world. This is not, this is not the world we're inheriting. It will be a new heavens and an earth created and renewed in righteousness. It will be a place without sin and without wickedness. All those who hate righteousness will not be found. Now, there might be a part of us that hears that promise of the earth being our inheritance, and we might want to shrug our shoulders and go, meh. Like, that's, that's good, but it's not really spiritual. It's not as, surely it's not as important as having my sins forgiven or being justified. Well, being forgiven and being justified, you could say, are a prerequisite for this promise. But if we think it is a lower level, I would have you to reconsider. Because the promise of the earth being our inheritance is a reminder that we are body-soul entities. And it's a God's promise to us that our bodies matter. Our hope in the age to come is not that we are going to be disembodied spirits floating in the air. Our hope is that we are going to have resurrected bodies. Our hope is that these bodies that we have now, these bodies which are sown in corruption, will be raised in incorruption. The Lord Jesus, in his resurrected body, is the first fruits of all those who will be raised in him. That is our hope. And it would be an incomplete salvation if we never received a resurrected body. If we died and was simply spear from now to forever, we have an incomplete salvation. But the reason Jesus took on flesh and blood was so that he could redeem that same flesh and blood and raise it in resurrected glory. Which brings us back to our promise. Those resurrected bodies are going to be received into a new earth created by the power of God for the people of God. And as I said, even now there is something of beauty and glory in this present creation. And we can see God's handiwork and there are places that we can see on this earth even now that are so beautiful they can take your breath away. Can you imagine what awaits the people of God in the new earth? There will be a beauty and a joy in that earth that has never been known before. Because the first, first earth could be lost. The one that, that is coming, that we're going to inherit, can never fall away. Sin can never enter it again. It can never be made ugly. And you remember in Eden, before the fall, that Adam and Eve would commune with God in the garden. Well, on this new earth... We will behold in a way unimaginable right now the glory and the beauty of God. And we will know the presence of our Savior in his resurrected glory as we walk this new earth. Consider the blessing of God that awaits us. And think, God is not in need of this earth. God does not need it. But he showcases his glory in his creation. And he provides a dwelling place of peace and enjoyment for his people. And what he does, he bequeaths that to us. That is what we inherit. And though in this life, the meek are often overlooked, and God's people often suffer and are lacking. Often we are, experience those, we are those that experience injustice. We wait for God to ultimately fulfill his will in us. We do without and are deprived. But the day is coming when those same people, you and I, will receive the entire new earth in all its fullness. Because that is the inheritance of the, that awaits the saints, a new earth. But for those of you who are outside of Christ, I want to ask you something. Did you notice in our reading of Psalm 37 how it mentioned that the wicked won't be found or will be cut off or transgressors shall be destroyed. It's a reminder that outside of Christ, you have no future hope. Your days on earth will end here. 
Now you will be resurrected as well, but it will not be a resurrection to life. It will be a resurrection to judgment that leads to the lake of fire. I wonder for some of you sitting here, while I was talking about the new earth, if you were thinking that would be a nice place to be. That would be a nice place to live in. You imagine a, a, a place where there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, there's nothing but beauty. You enjoy the whole earth and all that it possesses. But the sad thing here is that if you're outside of Christ, you would hate it because it's a place where righteousness is. And it's a place where the king of righteousness is. And for you to be able to dwell in that new earth, you need a new heart and you need a new righteousness. Because without that, you cannot be part of those who inherit the earth. But the good news tonight is that you can have a new heart and you can have a perfect righteousness. And that new heart and that new righteousness can be had by one and given to, given to you by one who is meek and lowly in heart, who suffered the just for the unjust, that he might bring you to God. And so my counsel tonight is to go to Jesus. Go to that one who is gentle and lowly, one who bids you to come to him for a new heart. Go to Jesus for that needed righteousness. You need his righteousness that he provides, but he freely gives it to you, to all those who come. And all those that Jesus saves... He makes them meek. And if you are saved by Jesus, then you too will be made meek. And then you too can look forward to the inheritance of a new earth where righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word to us. And Father, we confess our own struggle at times to be meek. We want to claim our own rights. We want to do our own things. Father, we struggle to submit to your will. We struggle to uh, deal gently with others around us. But oh, we thank you. There is one who is perfectly meek. And there is one who bids us to come to him because he is gentle and lowly of heart. Father, we pray that as your people that he would display that meekness in us more and more. Father, we pray that when others look in on us here, that they, they would see a people who are meek and who are lowly and who reflect their Savior's heart. And Father, we pray for those who right now are outside of Christ. Father, we do pray that you would prick their heart. Father, we pray, make them jealous, that they would desire that new earth that you are giving. But more importantly, that they would be that they would recognize their own sin and their own lostness. Father, they would recognize their own poverty of spirit and that would lead them to mourn over their sin. But oh, bring them comfort. Bring them comfort in Christ. Father, we pray that they would go to the one who is meek and who is lowly and who receives all who come to him. Father, we thank you for such a wonderful promise that they have that all who come to him, he will know, he will no wise cast out. Father, may many come tonight. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Yeah.